Um, our message this morning coming up on the screen, yes, already there, that's good, uh, concerns a particular story. It's a story about an active and obedient walk of faith. And what first jogged my memory to the recalling of this story was the core of Pastor John's message about superheroes back on the um, Sunday morning, I think it was Father's Day, wasn't it? Uh, yet it wasn't really until last Sunday after John's final uh, superheroes talk in this impromptu series of his uh, that I thought, yeah, okay, perhaps if I retell the story of this 2,000-year-old occurrence which was recorded at specific times by three separate historians, it might just, among other things, help reinforce Pastor John's point about God's regular testing of us to keep us battle-ready. Apologies to Meg, you've heard this about five years ago, I think. She'll have forgotten, it doesn't matter, because <laughs> most people forget whatever I say two minutes later. <laughs> Thanks for that. Um, <laughs> uh, I remembered that in John's first superhero's message, he quoted King David. It was in Psalm 16 and verse 3, and it's where David said, the godly people in the land are my true heroes. And then Pastor John showed us how these heroes of David turned out to be those who were actually able to keep faith, being that in essence they were the ones who, number one, knew that in their own weakness, any strength they needed just had uh, to come from the Lord. So that, two, they learnt in each and every situation they were in to ask for, any, uh, to, uh, ask for strength and counsel from God. From there, number three, hand in hand with him, they could then walk the walk of obedience to the successful living out of their life stories. And so today's message will tell the story of another particular group of heroes who, just like John's mention of those Bible hero, heroes on, uh, in King David's day, but now 1,000 years later on, also find themselves in similar desperate situations. This time as the early followers of Jesus, just a few years after his ascension from this earth. And they also start to rapidly realize that in their day too, being godly isn't just a matter of talking the talk of faith, but a continuum of walking the walk in active and obedient faith before God. Underneath our message title on the screen, it's up there I see, uh, you see it in smaller print within brackets, it says, remember Pella. Pella is a city 
And of itself, this particular city really is of very little significance to our story this morning, except as a key, hopefully to our future remembrance of what happened, or rather, what actually didn't happen to this group of around 100,000 early believers in Christ who fled en masse uh, over to the, uh, well, from their homes all around Israel, including Jerusalem, uh, Judea, the Galilee, and even there was a Christian settlement, I'm told, in the Golan Heights. And they went over to the other side of the border and into this town called Pella. All this happened around 66 AD. This particular group of people were Jewish Christians because the gospel message hadn't yet gone out to the Gentiles until after the book of Acts, chapter 7, when Israel as a nation, through its leaders, the Sanhedrin, finally totally rejected Jesus as Messiah. And that happened at the stoning of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. Um, geographically speaking, Pella was situated east of the River Jordan in an area called the Decapolis, so-called because it contained ten Greek cities. It's still there. It's now got an Arab name, which I forget, but it's still there. And these ten Greek cities of which Pella was one, rather than being under the jurisdiction of Israel and therefore in effect, the direct yoke of Rome were allowed to be self-governing from the times when the Greeks were in power. Okay, so let's start to get a handle on the story that I'm about to tell you. During the ministry of Jesus, he was walking one day together with some of his disciples along what's called the Valle Cardo, C-A-R-D-O. It's a street of, it was a street of shops on one side, uh, and on the other, a line of, of, of uh, mikvahs, which are the, uh, were the ritual purification pools, which ran along the base of the steps of the southern walls of the temple, so that the people that came could go through these pools and uh, up into the temple. And the disciples, they were looking way up high uh, to the top of this wonderful building. The New Testament book of Luke tells us about it. We're going to be looking, if we can get that up on the screen. Is it already up? Uh, you're in front of me, Andy. That's great. Uh, it, we'll look at, uh, we're looking at chapter 21, verses 5 to the first half of verse 7, and then verses 20 to 24 to get the gist of what it is. So, it says, some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen? So we go on to verse 20. And Jesus said, when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out and let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment in fulfillment of all 
that has been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against these people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Okay. How did this destruction come about? And what has that to do with these early Jewish believers in their Messiah? And I suppose whilst we're at it, the biblical concept woven through the whole of Scripture that faith is not just belief, but rather an action of obedience. Because you'll see right through the Bible, it's all about the walk of our faith. All through the Bible, the Bible so many times, if you look it up, it's all about walking. Let's talk about the destruction first. There was a major Jewish revolt against Rome which broke out in AD 66. The then Roman general, a man called Cestus Gallus, uh, brought his legions out from the coast, the coastal town of Caesarea, to Jerusalem and besieged and surrounded the city. But he made a mistake in thinking that what he was facing was just a regional revolt around Jerusalem. But he soon discovered it was much more grassroots and it was widespread and that Jewish guerrilla forces were cutting his supply lines. So he temporarily lifted the siege about after, I think it was about after nine days and was heading back to Caesarea when his forces were ambushed and totally wiped out. Thousands of Roman soldiers were wiped out by these same guerrilla forces at a place called Bet Haron, H-O-R-O-N. That place is still there. It's there's the higher part of the town and then the lower and a pass in between where the Roman soldiers were massacred. So the Messianic community, the early believers in Jerusalem and elsewhere, now recognize, ah, this is the sign of grace for us to flee the country and from the coming destruction in line with the earlier prophecy uh, by Jesus. One year later, in AD 67, a general called Vespasian came to take over where Cestus Gallus had failed. There was no way that the Romans, after suffering such a defeat of thousands of men, were going to leave it there. They wanted the whole of Jewry dead. So he took over, but Emperor Nero died, and Vespasian had to return to, to Rome to become emperor in his place. So what he did was leave his son Titus to finalise the job. And uh, Titus certainly did the job with the ruthless massacre of the people, total temple destruction and ethnic cleansing of the land in AD 70. It's peculiar to me. Two names, Titus, this Titus and the Titus in the New Testament, totally different people. Okay, let's go back now to the fore how the foretelling of destruction by Jesus actually affected these early believers. After the death and the resurrection and ascension of our Lord, they soon suffered tremendous um, persecution for the faith from the majority of their fellow countrymen. Those who had sided with the Jewish leaders against Jesus and had remained true uh, to the faith, not of biblical Judaism, but to the Pharisaic Judaism that it had become over the centuries. 
and which first John the Baptist and then Jesus, the Son of God, both totally preached against. As immature Christian believers, they were, they were suffering so much by walking according to the way which the first followers of Jesus were known as, rather than walking the path which the Pharisees and the rest of their countrymen were still suffering. So, in this dilemma, their thinking was that they'd temporarily uh, be able to go back into Judaism until the persecution stopped. And then later, repent and get saved again. The Apostle Paul wrote a letter specifically to these Jewish, what were known as babes in Christ. That was the letter to the Hebrews to explain that hey, this just isn't an option. We also learn from the book of Acts, chapter 2, and the first epistle of Peter, written again specifically to these early Jewish believers, that this going back into Judaism would also put them back under the nation's judgment, along with those who had rejected the miracles, uh, which Jesus had performed to authenticate the claim that he was the long-awaited Messiah. These miracles, of course, had fulfilled the Hebrew, or what we tend to call the Old Testament prophecies, along with the three exact messianic miracles which the Pharisees themselves taught that only Messiah would be able to do when he came, as proof positive to the people of his messiahship. Of course, we know that after Jesus had performed these same miracles, the political uh, leaders, the rabbis of the Sanhedrin, did a total U-turn prefabricating the lie that Jesus could only do them because he was possessed of Beelzebub, prince of demons, in other words, by Satan himself. And this is why, as a nation, they had now committed the unpardonable, unpardonable sin of blasphemy against Holy Spirit because they their leaders knowingly refuted the Spirit of God within the physical presence of Messiah God on this earth while he dwelt amongst them. You can read about it all in chapter 12 of Matthew's Gospel. So this is why Jesus foretold that the judgment upon this generation, just that generation, of the nation for that sin would be the coming destruction of Jerusalem, the scattering of the Jewish people among the Gentile nations, and Jerusalem trampled on by the Gentiles during what is known in the Bible as the time of the Gentiles until he returns at the end of the age. That actually started when they went to Babylon, and it will, re it will go on until the end of this age. And of course, this is why Peter told those early believers that whilst they might well at this moment be suffering terrible persecution from the rest of the nation, temporarily going back into Judaism would mean that they'd again become part of that generation doomed to physical destruction. So when the Romans came, they too would die the same terrible physical death as that of their unbelieving compatriots. More than that, even though as believers they were spiritually saved, Peter told them they would now need to partake of water baptism in these same temple mikvahs which other Jewish pilgrims were still using for ritual purification before entering the temple, or even some of the Gentiles were using for converting to Judaism. But for them on this occasion, it would be for them to 
publicly renounce the Judaism they used to have so as to totally separate themselves from the coming destruction upon that generation of their nation of which they were part. So this was the next step of major courage they needed to take, even under extreme persecution in their walk of active faith, obedient to Christ, which would save them from the coming physical destruction that others of their generation would face. Two passages from the Apostle Peter confirm this. First we've got in Acts 2, I think that will be coming up next. Uh, it's verses 40 to 41, we all know this. We hear Peter speaking to those 3,000 Jews converted back on the day of Pentecost. And it says, with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Those who accepted this message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Now, there are many Christians who believe that this is one of the passages which tell us that as well as believing the gospel message, it's also necessary to be baptized in water in order to receive salvation. But what Peter's saying here is that those converts who were already spiritually saved on this day of Pentecost now also needed to separate themselves from this that crooked generation by water baptism in order to be physically saved too. That's why he says, save yourselves. He meant save yourselves from physical death because only God can separate us from, or save us, I should say, from spiritual death. But he then later sp spoke that same message again, this time around 60 AD. Specifically for those more recent inexperienced and persecuted converts to Christ we've been looking at. This time through the first epistle of Peter, uh, chapter 3 and verse 19 onwards. Uh, we won't put that up on the screen, but it's where Peter says that just as Noah and family, who of course were already spiritually saved, were then physically saved through water in this box thing, this, this ark, from the disobedient and death meted out to their generation, so did these converts need to be physically saved by water baptism. And the bad conscience they were experiencing as they thought of temporarily going back into Judaism would then also be relieved as well. How? Because true believing involves doing. We believers don't need, we don't need a particular set of credentials to become an effective servant of God. He simply uses those who make themselves available to listen to him and then obey. Of course, our Bible doesn't specifically tell us what happened to these early Jewish believers or, and, and whether they were, uh, they were um, courageously and actively walking in obedience to Christ and the early scriptures by heeding uh, the prophecy and then the command of our Lord Jesus to his disciples to flee to the hills when this event happened. Fortunately, however, we have written records from three separate historians of what happened. First comes an eyewitness account from the historian Josephus, not a believer, a Pharisee by persuasion, and he lived in the first century through this actual 70 AD period. Then we have the account of a, a Jewish believer of the, a believer of the second 
century, a man called Hegesippus. And finally, the account of a church historian, a Gentile believer of the 4th century called Eusebius. Pulling the accounts of these three writers together, we learn that when the Jewish believers read the letter of Paul to the Hebrews, dated at around 63 AD, they obeyed the letter. Walking an active faith of obedience, these godly heroes, even under tremendous persecution for doing so, separated themselves from that crooked generation through water baptism and in 66 AD fled to the town of Pella. There they stayed during the four years of the war. We're told by Josephus, even though over 1,100,000 Jews, including women and children, were horrifically slaughtered during that war, not one of these believing Jews' lives was lost. Of course, from there on, we've, we've no more record of what happened to them. What we do know, as the diaspora scattered them so to far-flung corners of the earth, often in extreme danger, yet in their consistent obedience, God continued to use them to fight. John talked about it last week. It's what Paul called the good fight of faith. Consistently living the story of God's grace, they told how this Jesus had totally turned their lives around from the inside out. How do we know all this? Because within just over 200 years from then, the whole of the mighty Roman Empire knew their story. That this son of God, of God had become son of man, that we sons of men, as C.S. Lewis puts it, might become sons of the living God. So what can we learn here today? from the courageous acts of these men and women of God from the first century AD. Certainly I believe that throughout the ages, God has used the testing of us, his people, to deepen the gift of faith that he gives us, to tap into it, as John said, so we can model and learn what it means to fight for God as we obey his commands. He wants us battle-ready for the war raging round us. Last Sunday, Pastor John gave us a prime example of this principle of God's testing, reading from the first six verses of chapter three in the book of Judges. And as such, I think it bears repeating. Let's have a look at it. There it's already there. So it says, these are the nations that the Lord left to test all those Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars in Canaan. He did this uh, only to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who had not had previous battle experience. The five rulers of the Philistines, all of the Canaanites, the Sidonians, the Hivites, living in the Lebanon mountains from Mount Baal Hermon to Libo Hamat, that's in Masad, uh, yeah, far west forgotten the name of it. Far east, no, way past there, by the Euphrates. Um, anyway, um, they were left to test the Israelites uh, to see whether they would obey the Lord's commands, which he had given their forefathers through Moses. 
And then we go on to verse 5 where it says, The Israelites lived among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, Parasites. <laughs> they took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. So we need to recognize that God is steadfastly testing our battle readiness. And once we're able to say, uh, it brought to mind the prophet Samuel, because hey, he said, thus far the Lord has helped us. Then we'll stop the panicking, the complaining, and praying to God about all these strange things. What's happening to us? Because we don't want to be like those people in the last two verses we've just read there, a generation of Israelites who had no battle experience against the enemy. Otherwise, we, like them, might just start doing what's right in our own eyes instead of being obedient to what's right in his eyes. Last scripture coming up on the screen now is Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 to 6. And it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Are we getting it? By his strength, his enabling, we will walk our paths of obedience. So in the end, it's not easy, but it's simple. Trust and obey. I spoke recently, a couple of days ago, to my 84-year-old brother, 60 years a believer, who has cancer of the esophagus. And when he rang me, and during our conversation, he said, David, I am so grateful to God for allowing me to go through this. Ooh. It's brought me so much closer in my walk, and I've never loved Jesus as much as I do today. That's our God sanctifying us, fitting us for the purpose and display of his glory into eternity. Remember, Pella, trust and obey. Then in any and all situations, like those early believers, we too will be able to say, as the hymn says, it's well with my soul. Amen. Guys, let's just close our eyes for a minute, shall we? Let's just reflect on that moment. Just reflect on what David's been saying. Just this whole series of we can be heroes. The heroes of the faith for those that kept the faith. When everything battled against them. When everything said give up, be far easier to give up. They said, you know what, we're going to keep the faith. We're going to stay strong. I said last week that the evidence of our trust is seen in our obedience. The evidence of our trust is seen in our obedience. In our willingness to trust God. Like those early believers, when everything came against them, rulers were slaughtering them. Everything was coming against them to say, give up. 
I want to encourage you because what came to mind was something I said last week as I encouraged us all to, to journey with each other and I honoured those that have, have been part of this church for years to say that actually what God is calling you to do is to step alongside younger believers in this church who don't realise the battle they're in is not a battle because God doesn't love them, it's a battle because God is taking them deeper. I want to ask you, if you are uh, young or, or um, you, 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 or let's just say this, if you're finding yourself in a battle right now, just stand. I think God is doing something with the battles that we find ourselves in. If you're in a battle uh, and, and you define the battle yourself, maybe it's a battle of, uh, of, against yourself, against your feelings, against your emotions, against the desire to get closer to God. Maybe it's a battle of circumstance. Maybe it's a battle of temptation. Thank you for being brave and standing up. I can tell you this is a really safe place where we can be vulnerable before God and each other because we're all for each other in this place. And just you standing up doesn't say, I, I, I haven't got it and everybody else that sat down has got it. What it says is I'm going to be real before my God and I'm willing to have faith to trust him. So can I tell you the battle is found in standing up and saying, God, I, I'm going to stand before you right now. Can I ask those of you who are strong in the faith right now, those of you that have maybe journeyed with God for a long time, maybe those of you that feel that, that God is just, is just doing something in your life and you're just like, you know what, God is strong, God is faithful. Can you go and stand next to those that are in the middle of battle right now? Just stand up. If you are in this room and you believe Jesus, then welcome your part of the ministry team and you can start praying for people. One prerequisite is that you love Jesus and he's Lord of your life. The other one we're making this morning is that you have just been journeying with Jesus. You've been on that walk with him for a while. Just go and stand next to those that have stood right now. We've got a few down here. We've got Robin that stood. Someone want to